Leviticus 17. We are calling this message, Love Your Neighbor, But Don't Forget Yourself. So growing up in Sunday school, there was always this song that was played. Um, See if I can even remember how this goes. Um, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus, J, others, O, Y, U. Christians can get so gung-ho about this and about serving others that we can actually put ourselves in a spot where the Y falls off completely and you're just singing Joe, 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 Joe all the time. Keep going, Joe. Uh, That's not, however, what God wants. He wants you to not forget yourself in the act of serving and loving other people. We can get in a place where we feel like we are not using our time wisely or we're somehow sinning because I'm actually taking the time to recharge or to sleep in or to take a nap or to watch a movie or to go on a hike or to read (gasps) fiction. That's not a sin. God never called us to spend 100% of your energy on someone next to you 100% of the time, because if you did so, you will actually become a very miserable person to be around, and you won't be effective for anybody. I've had to learn through experience that I cannot just make my life all about being in front of people and sharing messages and listening to their problems and walking through with them and praying for like, I can't do that all the time. I have to have a moment where I get to fill myself up lest the well becomes dry. And then you don't become really effective in other people's lives. You get crabby, you get temperamental and you get resentful because nobody is responding the way you want them to. I want us to remember as we come into this passage of Leviticus where there's a lot of stuff in here, you're like, okay, what am I going to do with that? There's this one verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as I looked at our passage, that verse actually lies at the center of our entire reading tonight. So we begin in chapter 17 with priests, uh, basically not the priests themselves, but the sacrifices and the blood. God's going to say, only sacrifice here. Um, If you're going to kill an animal, make sure you bring it to the tabernacle. You only make offerings in the tabernacle because the blood is precious. Life is in the blood. So there's there's, um, tabernacle rules right there. Chapter 18, he then tells us who not to have sex with. Chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 20, we're now reversing. Who not to have sex with. And then chapters 21 and 22, back to worship. These are the priests who will handle those offerings you bring to the tabernacle. This is what the priests are to do in these various situations. So at the very center of this, we have worship, sacrifices, and priests. We have who not to have sex with. Then in the very center, love your neighbor as yourself. Because that, my friends, is the glue to everything else. Paul even said, is not the law fulfilled in love one another? So this becomes the center point for us. Well, then we look, let's start, shall we? Leviticus chapter 17. Now, let's not forget before we go there. um, What was 16 about? Chapter 16 was the day of atonement. Atonement means at one mint. It's a day when God and humans become one because there's a scapegoat to take the sin away. And this relationship can be embraced and enjoyed. And so Leviticus, in Exodus, we see Israel freed and they build the tabernacle. Leviticus tells Israel how to get to the tabernacle and how the priest can enter into the very center where God lives. And so Leviticus has brought us to the gates of the tabernacle and into the Holy of Holies where God rules, reigns, and lives. And so we were there last week. And now there's this one-ment, this at-oneness with humanity and God. And now the rest of Leviticus walks out of the Holy of Holies. So the first part of the book is about how do we get near God? And we see we got near. Now it's how do we walk with that nearness of God in the world around us? And very simply, love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you know a whole book in the New Testament says, that's how you know you love God, is if you love your brother. 
The whole book of 1 John is about that. So then, chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the household of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, tabernacle, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Verse 5. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, and they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. Uh, and the priest shall throw the blood on the altar, down to verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. <laughs> this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So here we open up the section with, I want them to bring their sacrifices, their offerings to the tabernacle. They cannot just do this wherever they want. Why? Because they are starting to sacrifice these things out in the wilderness to the goat demons. Now, we're not really given a lot of the backstory on what that's about, but I bet I can imagine what it is. It's, oh, my goats, I want them to flourish and be good. And when something bad's going on, it must be the goat demon that's doing it. So let's take every now and then a goat and appease the goat demon with offering a goat to him so that our goats can flourish. And this is what often happens, is when we get in this mindset, like it's very popular today, that, oh yes, yes, I'm spiritual but not religious. Oh no, I have my own private relationship with God, but I don't go to church. We can end up making offerings to goat demons. (laughs) What? Not right, literally. But what I've noticed is when we stay out of some sort of a structured fellowship and worship time with other believers, we tend to choose like a buffet the things we like about God and don't like and how we want to live. And we write our own book of Leviticus for our lives. And it happens. There's something powerful. Yes, we have our personal relationships with God, but there's something powerful about walking with those together with other people. One reason being, I may never want to love this person or hang out with a person who thinks differently than me, but church causes me to sing side by side with them, to take communion next to them, to eat at the dinner table across from them, to pray for them. There's something powerful about God's people coming to a central place. And yes, you don't have to go to church to walk with God, but you can possibly start creating your own goat demon if we are not walking with other believers. Uh, Verse 11 is interesting. He tells them, don't eat the blood. This is why in verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement, remember, at one-ment, for your souls. For it is the blood that makes oneness, atonement, by the life. God is saying, You cannot just spill the blood anywhere or even eat it because that is the life. Um, And of course, Jesus' blood has become life for us. Chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. Now, this is going to be the first time you're going to see this many times. I am the Lord, your God. If you uh, on your own time want to go and underline all the times it says, I am the Lord. It's a lot from here on in our reading tonight. I am the Lord. Now, Lord, remember, is his personal name, Yahweh. It's the I am who I am, or can also be translated, I will be who I am. I don't change. The promises in the past will be confirmed in the present and the future. Um, I am who I will be, your God. Now, God is a title. God in Hebrew is Elohim, and it simply means king, ruler, or judge. So he's reminding them, hey, I am Yahweh, your king. So in everything I tell you, remember, I am Yahweh, your king. This is how my people live. So in verse, we're continuing now, verse 3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. Remember, he led them out of Egypt. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. They're going through the wilderness to the promised land of Canaan. 
you shall not walk in their statutes. But you shall, verse 4, follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, why should we keep your rules? Because if you do them, you shall live by them. As negative as laws and rules can sound, God is teaching a people who've never been free how to live free, who have lived in death in Egypt how to live in life. So, hey, if you want life, just follow this outline. Okay. Other thing to remember as we come to these strange verses to come, um, he told them, don't do what Egypt did and what the Canaanites do. In other words, your neighbors live like this. So don't do this. So you might be like, who in the world does this? Well, he wouldn't say it unless people were doing it. So he's telling them, hey, people do this. You guys are not to be that way. You're a different kingdom. So it means to be holy. You are my holy people. So um, just remember the phrase, but everybody's doing it, doesn't always cut it. Now, sometimes everybody's doing it. And we say that, and especially youth are like pulled to it. because It looks so cool. Everybody's doing it. I just want you to remember as we read these coming verses that this was considered cool at one time. And you're going to read it and say, oh my gosh, that was cool. Well, years down the road, we're going to look back at what everybody was doing and say, oh my gosh, that was cool. So we need to think about what we're following and doing. So this is what used to be cool. None of you, verse 6, shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. Yeah, that was cool one time. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, where, uh, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of any of your daughter's daughters. For their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. And it keeps going and going down to verse 17. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter and her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. But everyone's doing it. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach, 19, a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Wait, what? So we have this list of you shall not have sex with these people via the euphemism of uncovering nakedness. And then all of a sudden we have this, don't give your children to Molech. That was random. And then we go back to sex. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Whoa. So what's that part about giving your children to Molech? Possibly, the reason here is we have a reference for the context in which these sexual activities are performed around the worship of a god named Molech, or maybe even other gods and goddesses. Now, one of the things way back in the day with paganism is that they had a lot of fertility rites. A fertility rite is simply the worship service in which you're begging the god to make your women, your cattle, and your crops pregnant and fruitful. And so because you want the gods to make everything fruitful so you can eat to live and have animals and have babies, well, you go to the temple prostitutes, both male and female, and you have sex because that is, in a sense, intimacy with the god and it's asking the god to bring seed to the land and to your families. So you're enacting what you want the god and goddesses to do. Um, Sometimes uh, some cultures would even go as far as, hey, It's a free-for-all festival, so everybody would have sex with everybody, including relatives. Because the more that went around, the more fruitfulness we will have. And so God is addressing something very real and saying, yeah, everyone's doing it, not you guys. So 
He then reminds them in verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. Remember when a Jew became unclean, they were removed from the camp? Well, here he's saying these nations have become unclean, and so they'll be removed from the land of Canaan, which begs the parallel of the land Israel's going to inherit and the temple as the same thing. That the land they're going to is going to be holy land, like the land in the tabernacle is holy land. Because you behave a certain way in this land, you will be unclean and moved out. And so the land became unclean, and so I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, and the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Well, you would think Israel would have no problem going in and living differently. Unfortunately, by the time we are in the middle of the Old Testament, we learn that they did exactly what the nations did, and they were vomited out of the land too. Chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your king am holy. Now that is not a call to perfection. Sometimes we think of holy as those nice pictures with just delicate skin and glows around the heads. And it looks like they don't even touch the ground because how dare you be defiled. That's not holiness. Holiness is a choice to live differently than the world around you. Holiness is a choice to follow God's path even though everyone goes down the other direction. That's holiness. God says, I'm different. I'm different than every other God and goddess of every other nation. I am different than humans. I am the creator. There is none above me. So I'm simply asking you to follow my path that's different than any other God or goddess or nation. That's holiness. So he's asking them to follow him in these paths. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And then he goes on and talks about the offerings, which we've read, and reminds them how they should be offered. Verse 9. Now we get to the loving your neighbor part. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why? You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your king. Whoa. So here we have this plan in which God says, hey, when you go and gather food from your hard-earned labor, whether it's your vineyard, your um, groves, or your crops, don't gather every single last piece and say, mine. It says, just do a quick, just do a good sweep through. And like, if you drop one, oops, leave it. If you miss that section, leave it. Don't go all the way to the edge of your field, leave it. Leave some there because that's how God is going to take care of the poor. That's the welfare system that God had in mind is that the people would gather maybe just 90, 95% of their stuff and leave it for the poor. Now, what's cool is that they, it wasn't just, oh, here, let me just get it all bundled this percentage for the poor. It was leave it there. And then the poor would get to come and work for their own food too. They would have to gather it. And that would also give them not a sense of I'm fed, but a sense of fulfillment that I did something with my hands and got this in return. God cared about the whole human, not just feeding them, but giving them a sense of purpose and that I can do something with my hands. Now, of course, Ruth was a benefit, uh, beneficiary of this law. Um, Ruth was the foreigner who did not, was not Jewish, but she was in Israel and they needed food. And so she took the gleanings from Boaz's field in other words, not everything was completely reaped bare, and she got the benefit of some of his crops. So we see in the Bible where this is beneficial. 
Verse, so uh, for us, one way we can love our neighbor is not to consume absolutely everything just because it's yours. Maybe you don't need 12 pairs of socks. Well, if, I don't know, maybe you do, but um, maybe, you, you know what I'm saying though? Maybe you don't need that extra whatever. Maybe you haven't even touched it in a year. Probably a pretty good sign it's not really needing to take up space in your house. Verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you until night, all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Some practical advice for you there. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Oh, Jesus picked up on that one, didn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I say unto you, do not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Here's the truth. If we do feel anger toward another person or some sort of bothering thing, we need to deal with that because otherwise it's going to fester into sin in our life. And sometimes it might be as simple as someone did something that really bothered me and you're going to hold a grudge against them about it, but you never talk to them. And lo and behold, they have no clue they did that to you. They were just minding their own business and you perceived everything in a wrong way that you thought that they were just trying to get under your skin. You create this whole story about what beasts they are and why you have a right to hate them. And all along, little Jojo had no clue that you were this angry at him that he did something to take you off like that. Like, why don't we ever just talk to each other? It can be as simple as, hey, you know, I don't know if you meant it this way, but when you said that, it said this to me. It hurt my feelings here. I'm kind of insecure about that. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. Well, now you have a bond. Now you know something about each other instead of like, oh, I'm not, oh, they're sitting at that table. I'm going to sit at this table tonight. They sit on that side of this, the auditorium. I'm going to sit on this side because I can't stand them. No, reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord Another reason I like having our walk with God be organized and with other people and having church is because we have to realize who our neighbors are. And sometimes the neighbor next to me at church, a room like this, like I'm, I talk to most of you and I'm not sure apart from church, I would have anything in common with you other than God or that I would ever bump into you on my own accord, right? Like we, we have different jobs, we have different interests, different age levels, but yet we bump into each other here. And there's something beautiful about a broad and diverse family. And sometimes we can get in the mode of, um, like this passage says in verse 18, you shall not have a grudge against the sons of your own people. You're like, my people. I hang out with my people. I have no problem loving my people. But you know what Jesus does? Is as he's walking through Samaria in the gospel of Luke, he's walking through the area of Samaria, the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along very well. There's racial tension there and religious tension. One of the experts of the law, the Bible, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you read it? And he says, I shall love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, you answer well. To Jesus, it's done. But this guy, uh-uh. It says, wanting to justify himself, he asked, well, who's my neighbor? What does that mean, wanting to justify himself? Wanting to feel like he's doing this already. And Jesus never actually defines neighbor for him, but gives him this story in which a man, no specification, it could be anybody, you, me, a man is beaten on the road to Jericho. A Levite and a priest walk by, 
and see him and say, oh no, I'm walking around him. But then the Samaritan comes. Now this would have shocked Jesus' hearers right there. Because there is this trilogy uh, that if you hear two names, you expect to hear a third. Um, kind of like this, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So when Jesus says, priest, Levite, well, Israel knows what the next one's supposed to be, an Israelite. That was a threesome in their language, in their culture. So when Jesus says, a priest, a Levite, Samaritan, it turns them heads. Wait, we weren't expecting that one. And then it's the Samaritan who helps this person who's hurt and takes care of him. And then Jesus asks this Bible scholar, so which of those three was a neighbor? And he so dislikes Samaritans because they're not of his tribe, of his people. He can't even say the name. He says, I suppose the one who helped him. Dude, he's got a name. He has a home. He's a Samaritan. He doesn't like Samaritans. But, but notice what Jesus does here. He takes this verse, love your neighbor as yourself, in a context where it talks about your own people. And he says, your own people are more than you thought. They're not just people like you and people you like. They are the Samaritan you don't like too. They're the people you least expect to help you. Another interesting fact is if we are indeed visiting God in his presence and walking out from there as Leviticus does, we should see a love for neighbor. Interestingly is that the priest and the Levite walked by the wounded man. You know which way they were going? Away from Jerusalem, not toward. They had just been at the worship of the house of God. They're leaving and yet it has not affected them to love their neighbor as their self. They continue to walk on by. It's challenging to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Leviticus does talk about loving others too, which we will get to in just a second. Um, so let's go on to verse 26. So there's some more uh, laws to keep. 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. <coughs> you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Some people uh, look down upon tattoos. Now, there are different reasons for that. But uh, never should we hear this verse cited as a reason. When God says, you shall not tattoo yourselves, he's not saying the way that Americans want to put artwork on their body, you may not call it art, but some people do, the way that they do that to their body, um, he's not prohibiting that here because what's happening is Egypt would tattoo themselves, and notice the context, for the dead. It was, it was a worship ceremony for the dead, all God is asking Israel to do is stop doing what the Egyptians did and don't do what the Canaanites do because you worship God differently. Now today, if I was to go get a tattoo, let's say um, I love my wife like around my finger or something, um, I am not worshiping the dead or some other god or goddess in doing that. Um, I'm just getting ink on my skin. I, I hope we can agree with that. Uh, that this verse does not necessarily apply to the present. So you have no right to judge the punk or the young kid who is wearing ink on their skin. Now, they might scare you because sometimes tattoos are an image of toughness. I understand that. But you have no right to judge their good or bad person status because of that. So verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary and the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. So make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up, verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Oh, now we like that one, don't we? You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Do we have enough of that today? 
Do we have enough people honoring the gray head or the face of an old man? I don't sense that there's a, a lot of respect for the aged. It's almost like they're, well, you've moved on with your prime, move over. And there's, a, there's a, you know egotistical view among the younger in our nation, and our nation worships youth. Let's just, I mean, acknowledge that. It's not the young people's fault only. Uh, we have a country that worships youth and beauty, and that aging is ugly, and it's something you should fear and abhor. Brothers and sisters, if we live well, we need not fear aging. The Bible says there is a place for those with gray hair. And it's not just to be adored by the young. Oh, gray hair, yes, yes, we bow down to you. Um, Not that at all. Because frankly, some people with gray hair do not really deserve a lot of respect. They don't live like they are worthy of respect. They're crabby and they're angry at everything. And of course, no one likes you because you don't like anyone else. Some people don't age well. But listen, if we live well with Christ and we allow him to work in us and to continually die to the things that don't belong in our lives and be raised with him into new life, you can age gracefully and beautifully and you can become a very valuable and important mentor to the Christian community. We need more gray hairs pouring into more youth in the church of Christ. We're seeing instead is, well, we like a lot of music, so all the young are going to this church, and we like him, so all the gray hairs are going to this church. We're missing something very important. The attitude of both are wrong, especially, well, yeah, of both, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just for a minute talk to the gray heads. <laughs> when the attitude is, well, I can't stand their music, I'm not going to hang out with them, I'm going to go to my people, my place, um, you're missing out on an opportunity to share your life experience and wisdom in a young punk who has tattoos that does not know life the way you know it and can be spared some pain and be given some good wisdom and advice? Are, are we willing to pour into them? Now, I hear a lot about, oh, the millennials and, well, the new generations coming up, Generation Z. Like, I mean, we have, who knows what we're going to say about them? They're like just about to graduate and all, but, you know, those punks and kids and <laughs> whatever we all say, they don't even move out of their parents' basement till 32. Um, listen, listen, I understand. It's hard because in this world with technology, everything changes so fast and it's so easy to feel left behind. Believe you me, I know. I work with youth. I feel older every day. Not because I feel like I'm breaking down, although I am, but because <laughs> they seem like they're getting younger every day. What is that? app. <laughs> you can do that with your phone? I did not know. That. So I understand the world's moving so fast. It's easy just to be resentful, but I'm encouraging you to hang in there because the Bible says you're to be honored and we need not just old people. We need elders. An elder is someone who's lived life and turns around to give that life to the younger. That's what an elder is. And ancient civilizations were reverencing their elders because they looked at them as guides. We need guides. We need guides. And I'm thankful that Pastor Mike has been that for me. He could see me as a punk and as someone who doesn't teach the way he teaches and all these things, these excuses he can have, yet he's been a guide to me. That's what an elder is. And I want to encourage you to become an elder. Now, of course, the younger, they need to accept the fact that you have a lot to say too. We can talk to them as well. Um, okay, where are we? 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. So not just your neighbor, the immigrant too, the person who's not like you. You, don't forget, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus does encourage us to love people not like us. Chapter 20, uh, punishment for child sacrifice. Now, we may think we don't sacrifice children anymore, but of course we have abortions. But mostly overlooked is we have careerism. Fathers who see their status in their workplace as more important than being with their families. Uh, Careerism is a form of child sacrifice. And we need to be careful that we're establishing the right time limits for work and for family. Um, Verse 10, 
If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So we're going to go through a lot of the same sexual sins, but this one's more emphasizing on what you do with them. You put them to death. Um, Where would our population be if we did that? And don't, don't say you wish it would happen because some of us are not innocent. If a man takes a sister, so it keeps going. Then verse 22, we see again the same reasoning. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you for they did these things. Okay, verse 24. And I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a phrase that means very abundant. I am Yahweh, your king, who has separated you from the nations. Verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And then verse 21 and 22. I know you've done your reading, so you know what it says. It talks about the priests, which we've already talked a bit about them earlier before the Day of Atonement. Uh, so I'm actually going to decide not to cover that ground tonight because I think there's some more important things to cover back on. Um, shall you go with me one more time to 19 verse 18? The heart here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so hence comes the title for us tonight, Love Your Neighbor, But Don't Forget About Yourself. Don't forget yourself. There's something that we don't catch all the time in that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And it is that if you don't know how to love yourself, you will not know how to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself assumes that you have some sort of love for yourself and that you then can turn that toward your neighbor. But when we live with a constant others first, others first, and never give ourselves consideration, we are not loving ourselves and we do not therefore properly love others. Um, someone who, who hates who they are will find the people who mirror that to them as loathsome and they will be unable to love them. And we wonder why we see people that just hate other people for no apparent reason. Other than, I just can't stand them. There's a lot of negative energy toward them. I have found in my listening to people that there is a correlation that this person reminds you of something you hate about yourself. And so they hate them. And that the people who have a hard time with a lot of other people are the people who are most unhappy with who they are. And they are the most unhappy about themselves. And they don't understand how to love themselves. Maybe they're shame for something they've done, or they don't like how they look, or it's something about the parent, what their parents did or said to them, or there's something about themselves they have not come to terms with. And so they are hurtful, hateful people. Now, what's beautiful about this is that we're being addressed here coming out of the Holy of Holies, out of the Day of Atonement, out of that moment where God and humans become at one. And what we need to understand is that if we choose the presence of God continually and let Him tell us who we are and become one with Him and allow his forgiveness to wash over us and be open about our shame and our mistakes and our past and our present and our fears about the future, the more we open up to him and embrace his presence and his friendship, there becomes a oneness in which we don't have to look at ourselves and say, oh, but I, I hate that, that lump of flesh and mistakes and ugliness and, and he's never outgoing enough and never popular enough. And we don't have to look at our, because we, we were becoming one with Christ. And what we begin to see is, him and I walk together. I'm filled with him and he tells me who I am and we can learn to love ourselves. Now, when we say love yourself, this is not some new age, like self-help kind of thing. Like just feel good about yourself. Go out and just, you deserve a new car. Go buy yourself something or that ice cream. Yep. You've been doing good. Go lick it up. This is not what we're saying is go around and think about how to please myself. But it's about learning how to stop hating yourself, 
Learning how to love yourself as a child of God created in his image. And when we can be there and at one with God, we can then see everybody the same way. When I'm one with God, there's no one else who isn't one with him. Everyone is my brother. Everyone is my sister. Everyone is made in the image of God whom I'm also made. We are, in a way, extensions of God. The way we treat each other is the way we treat God. We have to learn to be okay with ourselves before we can love our neighbor. So yes, Jesus, others, and you, but please don't forget the you part. And so often we have this tendency to be servants and we begin to feel like this. Well, first of all, it can feel really good when you serve somebody else, but then we can really seek that feeling as some sort of sense of worth and personal gratification. And so we keep serving people and we make it a mission to find out all the needs people have and to be proactive in meeting those needs and preemptive in their hurts and pains and kind of helping shelter them. We serve them quickly. We understand what they need and we're always there for them. And we make it our mission to help other people. This sounds really good. It would be really great if we all kind of did that. But you know what actually begins to happen? If we begin to pride ourselves, because we're fallen beings, we begin to pride ourselves on being the Savior. And we begin to think of other people as tools to make myself a helpful person. And we begin to feel better about ourselves because I help people who need help. But the ugly side of this is you begin to sense your worth as being needed, as being important. And then you begin, you say, I need to be needed. And when people don't need you, you feel worthless. And then you get angry at the people. Why don't they need me? Don't they see that I'm a helpful person? Don't they see that I care about them? Or you then help somebody who does not seem to acknowledge what you've done for them. And then you burn with resentment against them. Because you help them because of your need to be needed by them. And when they don't acknowledge how helpful you are or how much they need you, you burn with resentment. And this can be a very dangerous place. And you are not a helpful person when you are here. We're resenting people because they don't acknowledge how wonderful we are. If you have this need to be needed, you really are making the universe orbit around you. But you justify yourself by saying, yes, but I'm loving my neighbor. This is why it's important that we love our neighbor as ourself so that we do not become dependent on people's dependency on ourselves. So that our serving them can be not to make me feel better about myself, but a pure overflow of my oneness with God. So, some practical tips for us to help us love ourselves is simply to do what Leviticus does. Boundaries. Leviticus is full of boundaries. You cannot go here without this, and only this person can go there, and only on this day, and don't have sex with these people, and only treat people this way, and don't reap those parts of the field, but do reap that, and don't offer it to those gods, and don't make the sacrifice there, but make it here. Boundaries abound in Leviticus. They're all over the place. And one of the things we need to realize is that God said, love your neighbor. Your neighbor has a boundary. It is not your roommate or your spouse, or, well, I mean, that sounds confusing. Your neighbor can be those people, but we have to remember that your neighbor is not you. There is a difference, and we need boundaries in our lives. I have learned that frustrated, upset, unhappy people who don't like themselves are people who don't have boundaries. They end up doing whatever everybody else is doing. They don't know how to put up healthy boundaries between them and people that bug them. They don't know how to create structure in their life because they say yes to everything and they go with the flow. There's no boundaries in their life. And they're frustrated and they're miserable and they bring all of that to everybody else. 
But the happy people in life, the people who are effective toward other people, I've noticed have a strong sense of boundaries, a strong sense of drawing a line when enough is enough. I will serve people, but when they start to demand my family time or the energy of the rest of my household, or I can't even do my work effectively because of them, I need to draw a line and say, look, I can help you this much. But we have a hard time with, you, you, you admit it, you feel like you're a bit of a, I can't find my chair, you feel like you're a bit of a sinner when you have to draw, like somebody needs me, I have to, but what is saying somebody needs you? Is that the ego that says, I want to be Superman? Is it okay to say, I have helped you this far? These are questions we need to ask. Where are the boundaries in our life? When we give a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot, you are exhaling the life and love of God to everybody. When I preach, I am exhaling the life and love of God to people. But nobody can exhale forever. We must inhale. And there comes a time when you've helped somebody And maybe the best thing to do is instead of running down your list for the next person to help is to have a day to inhale or a moment to inhale to find out how to love yourself so that you can continue loving others. It's a flow. It's an inhale and an exhale. Healthy people breathe. So this comes with learning how to say no. No, you know what? I've, I've, I think I need some space right now. It also comes with learning how to say yes. Yeah, you know what? I haven't seen a movie in a year. Why not? No and yes. It's our inhale and it's our exhale. Sometimes you do have to say yes to helping somebody. This is not a message about stop helping people. You're doing it too much. This is be careful that you are not boundaryless. So sometimes we do have to say yes. But it's about knowing where that line is of when am I effective and when am I losing effectiveness because I'm drained and I'm exhausted and I've been exhaling all the time. Jesus did this in the Gospels. We see, for one instance, but we see him alone often, um, he, he would often withdraw because he needed to inhale. We see all of his exhaling and we think that's all he did. no. Jesus realized the importance of I'm effective because I take time for myself. Um, in Mark chapter 1, he's at Peter's mom's house. Or, oh no, it's Peter's house, but his mother-in-law is there. Um, he heals her. Then the town gets word, and so they all come to the door. Talk about boundaries. They're coming into the house to be healed. <laughs> he begins to heal all of them. And so what does he do the next day? Everyone wakes up and they can't find him. Where's Jesus? They find him way out in the woods somewhere, spending time by himself. And you know what the disciples say to him when they find him? Dude, we've been looking everywhere for you. Everybody needs you. And Jesus got up and said, oh my goodness, I've let everybody down. What are they going to do without me? Let's go. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I took so selfish time. Nope, he didn't say that. He looks at them and says, I know, I know. We're going to the next town. What? They need you. No, we're going to the next town. Jesus had a sense of boundaries, and he can't be everyone's savior all the time. It's ironic to say that, isn't it? Because he is. But in his humanity, he showed us how to live and how to be fully alive. He breathed in and he breathed out. Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. By the way, this is right after the whole Good Samaritan parable, interestingly. Mary and Martha have Jesus at their house. You know the story. Martha is doing the dishes and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha's upset, probably because she needs to be needed and nobody's acknowledging, you're such a servant to us, what would we do without you? And so she's all like bitter, right, in the kitchen. She's someone who doesn't have boundaries. But Mary does. She recognizes the dishes will be there. They'll be there as long as we leave them there. Jesus is here now and this is my time. That is a parable about spending time with God. Yes, it's also a parable or a story about boundaries. Because you know what else Martha was upset about? Mary has different boundaries than I do. She's in the men's room, and I'm in the women's room. Mary doesn't belong there. 
Sitting at the feet of Jesus is not just a literal picture of where she is positioned. It's a phrase of discipleship. You sit under the feet of your rabbi. Mary is being discipled. And a disciple was a man's position. Whoa, Mary has a radical redefinition of boundaries and she's thriving. Um, Another thing we can do is have some fun every now and then. Have some fun. Life isn't all serious. Life isn't all time is short, better save the world. You can save people when you're healthy and having fun. So some of us need to know where is our happy zone and explore it every now and then. Um, If you're a serious scholar, read some fiction every now and then. Lighten up a little bit on your reading schedule. I know you've been trying to do that. (laughs) If you are uh, someone who has all kinds of energy, but you have a desk job and it's really hard for you and you find this energy coming out on people, start taking walks with no other agenda than just to walk. Your body will be happy. Your soul will be happy. And guess what? You're going to feel energized. You're going to feel better. And then you're going to be more patient with the people around you. Some of us need to spend longer time in prayer, Um, not just rambling a list to save the world and all the people we're trying to pray for, but praying to seek within ourselves, where are my feelings and why am I always angry at this person? Or why am I frustrated with that situation? Or why am I not feeling the joy of God? Just looking within and letting God be one with you. But of course, I want to close by saying boundaries are not just about where to stop going, but they're also about where to start going, right? Everything's in moderation. We cannot withdraw. In the same way we cannot exhale all the time, we cannot inhale all the time. A boundary teaches us rhythm that both have to be at play. So fun, yes, but sometimes we're serving and we're doing hard things too. That's what Leviticus teaches us. Love your neighbor But don't forget yourself. Love yourself too. Create boundaries for yourself. A safe zone where you can grow and be healthy. One of the major objections we hear, I hear, is that it feels selfish to take time for yourself. I want want you to consider the trees of the forest kind of something Jesus would do, right? Consider the birds or the flowers. I want you to consider the trees for a moment. What do they do day after day, night after night? They breathe. They soak in minerals from the soil. They host birds. They drop seeds. They make fruits. Sometimes they host squirrels and other critters. But what's the tree's number one concern? Have you ever seen a tree stressing and straining about making sure there's more nests in its branches? I got to be more helpful. I'm not doing my part. The tree's number one concern is grow. Drink sunlight, drink from the soil, and grow. Because the bigger and stronger I get, the more birds I will host the more shade I will provide for the forest floor so that the moisture can stay and not be dried up by the hot sun, the more I will keep the earth from eroding down the slope. And the more healthy that I am, the more healthy that the rest of the forest will be. If the tree stopped taking care of himself and died, and all the trees began to do that, the forest as a whole, as an ecosystem, would suffer. The health of the forest depends on the health of the tree. And we need to understand that the health of the world depends on the health of the Christian, on the health of you. Please take time for yourself and create boundaries. Love yourself as you love your neighbor.